Welcome to Counterthought, a podcast conserving America's freedom, culture, and values. This is Brian Kletter, the creator and host of the podcast. You can engage with the podcast on Instagram at counter underscore thought or at Counterthought CEO and on our Facebook page, Counterthought Podcast. For audio versions of the podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And for video versions of the podcast, join us on YouTube at the Counterthought channel. Let's go. The 2022 midterm elections are over-ish. With early indications that a red tsunami was coming with the success of Governor DeSantis and Marco Rubio coming out of Florida, the rest of the night didn't turn out that way. So what can the Republican Party learn from the 2022 midterms? The midterm elections are over. Last night, I was privileged to be invited to an election party. My first one, I was um, at Corey Mills election party representing uh, Seminole County District 7 in the state of Florida. He won his election. He won it. It's made the party that much more fun. Um, After that experience, I'm definitely going to go back to or go to more election parties uh, in the future, you know, 2024, maybe even help out with a campaign directly. I met some fantastic people. Um, One of the political consultants is who invited me there. He was a a guest on my podcast, David Pollack. And we talked about on that episode, the two-party system, which I believe is one of the takeaways from this 2022 midterm election, but I'll get into that a little bit later in this episode. But to start, I just want to I just want to talk about what took place on you know Tuesday night, November eighth, during the midterm election. It's so like I said in the open, the with Florida being on the East Coast, DeSantis winning by twenty points, like one point five or almost two million votes. Marco Rubio trouncing uh, Val Demings in the Senate race. The state of Florida flipping four or gaining four seats. In the House, Corey Mills being one of them, and then I think two more coming over, coming out of the uh, Pinellas County, Hillsborough area, so like the Tampa, St. Pete area. You know, it looked promising. It looked great for weeks leading up to the election. Following the polls, it was you know this red wave and possibly this red tsunami. That was the term being used. You know, possibly resulting in 54, 53 seats in the Senate, possibly a 30 to 40 seat improvement in the House. But now as I sit here at the time of this recording on Wednesday night, and when you get this um, podcast episode, it'll be Tuesday at the, I mean, Thursday at the earliest, the House majority that the Republican Party might get could just be as small as five or eight seats. And the Senate is, again, is going to be a toss-up. There's going to be a runoff in Georgia that was announced on Wednesday. The state of Arizona, for whatever reason, and the state of Nevada are still counting votes. Talk about that more in the in this episode as well, about how I believe there needs to be some standardization to the counting of votes. Not a federalization, but a standardization. I think that would help for, for numerous reasons. But looking at you know what took place on Tuesday night, it, as a member of the Republican Party, I was excited. You know, I was trusting the polls, but the polls continuing since 2016, can't be trusted. They can't be trusted. You know, the polls in 2016 were showing that Trump was not going to win. He won, right? The the polls leading up to the 2022 midterms, 
led you to believe that there was going to be this big red wave, you know, just like Obama experienced, um, you know, just typical, the first midterm after the presidency changes parties, you know, pretty significant changes are expected in that first mid in that midterm election, but it didn't happen. And the polls said that it, it would, that there would at least be a wave, maybe not a tsunami on um, outside chance there was, but you know, for sure a wave. And then at the end of the night, you're thinking, okay, well, the Democrat party, they're just, they're probably pretty pleased with how this went. I mean, talking to estimates being that there could have been a 15 to 20 seat majority in the house. And then Republicans are probably going to end up somewhere between maybe five and 10. I mean, that's a, that's a win based on the expectations from the Democrat party and a loss for the Republican party. Now, yes, there are small victories or, you know, small battles were won, but maybe ultimately the war is not won. We'll see what happens with the Senate. Um, the best Republicans are going to do, it looks like, would be 50-50, which is just going to be the status quo. That's what it is today. Um, so flipping the House would, would be great, but it's not what was expected. And going back to this, the expectations, it's I was hopeful that there was going to be this tsunami maybe just a wave but what we saw is that it was barely like a white cap from a gulf breeze i mean yeah there's there's small victories as i just mentioned but you know florida adding four republican seats in the house new york adding um some seats in the house flipping a couple um governor kemp you know winning beating stacy abrams decisively in georgia Governor Abbott, but those are states. Governors are, you know, individualized to the state. Sure, they can have some kind of national presence, maybe help with messaging, but, you know, a governor is responsible for their state. And when you look at it, most of the incumbents just, just went ahead and won, which is very confusing um, because polls show, granted, I just said I don't trust polls, but maybe I'd be more specific. I don't trust election polls like candidate versus candidate who's winning who's who's not winning and, and so on but exit polls and everything and polls leading up to the election the midterm election was saying okay you know 65 70 percent of americans are dissatisfied with the current state of the country but most of the incumbents won most of the incumbents won so it's like okay well if you're dissatisfied why didn't you show that in your vote are you just so comfortable with misery that, you know, misery loves company as the saying goes, and you just want to sit there and kind of wallow in the misery because you don't want to take that giant leap, so to speak, and maybe switch parties for an election or maybe, you know, just for a candidate or two. Is that what it, it's come to? We don't, we're so, we're so entrenched and dug in to our political parties that we can't say, well, you know what, I'm going to vote based on what makes my life better and support a candidate that's going to improve my life and the people maybe in my community. Is, is that where we are? Cause that's where it seems like we are. If, if 65 to 70% of the American people voters are dissatisfied, why are all these incumbents winning? You're voting for people who are going to keep the status quo. And that's one, another, one of the major takeaways from this midterm election is because there was no red wave, because there was no red tsunami, 
the Democrat Party is just going to double down on everything they've been doing in the last two years. This cultural battle that is going on, take it beyond politics, but the cultural battle that is going on that then um, influences politics, it's going to continue. Everything that we saw from January 2021 through this midterm election, you know, um, gender affirming care, trans, transing the children, uh, COVID lockdowns, if they were given the chance that would happen, you know, mandates, uh, the rise in crime, inflation, and all these different issues. They're just going to double down on that because no lessons have been learned. What lesson is the Democrat Party going to learn? They're going to say, hmm, you know, well, it was projected that the Republicans were going to take about maybe 20 to 30 seats in the House. They took half to a third of those seats. And even though voters were saying at a 70% clip that they're dissatisfied in the and Biden's approval numbers were at like 40% or maybe a hair lower. We still performed pretty well, you know, um, relative to how midterm elections are supposed to go whenever, you know, the party of the presidency f- changes. So why don't we just keep hammering home and double down on everything that we've been been doing these first two years? Why wouldn't they do that? And that's why I'm so disappointed in the American voter. If you're dissatisfied, why did you vote? Why did a majority of you vote for the status quo? And I think part of that is maybe the two-party political system. I talked about that in a previous podcast episode. I have the two-party political system. Again, David, David Pollack was my guest on that episode. If you have not listened to it, go back and, and listen to it. It's I'm trying to find it here. It is episode 63. So if you haven't listened to episode 63, it's about the two-party political system. Go back and listen to it. Um, Great conversation again with David Pollack. And I think that's maybe part of the reason why so many people are just have dug their heels in with their party, even though maybe what their party is doing is not benefiting them. Maybe they disagree with how their party is, you know, maybe do it or votes economically or like their economic plan, but maybe they agree with them when it comes to social issues and other things. But even though the maybe the I would guess that the, like the economics would more directly impact a voter's life than just some of the social social issues, you don't see that change happening, the change in the vote. So as I said, and, and my guest again, as we talked about in episode 63, the two-party political system of the United States, David and I talked about in the episode how you know George Washington advised against political parties. He advised against a two-party political system because he said that it would turn into just a power grab. And I think that's where we are. We have, again, people just being reluctant and not wanting to have change because they know, okay, maybe I agree with, let's say, a Republican or a Libertarian on this issue, but I know if I vote for that Republican or that Libertarian, on this issue that I am, you know, not just voting on that one issue because I only get one vote. I am not voting for everything else that the Democrat, you know, in my, in my district or for the Senate or whatever, for the presidency, I am voting against everything that they stand for that I also agree with. And the two party political system, it's just, again, it's a power grab, just like George Washington expected and advised the expectation to be just that. 
So I think it is time. I know we have other political parties. I'm friends with many libertarians. There's the Green Party and other parties. But the way the elections are structured and the way all of that is structured, the funding and um, debates and so on and all, and all of that that goes into the elections, it's basically impossible for those other parties to gain a footing and actually be a contender in these elections. So I believe we do need to change the rules in order for these other parties to have a level playing field. You know, take off any kind of restrictions that exist and allow them to operate <clears throat> equally. Just operate equally. The funding will change, right? Because of, you know, people making donations and all of that, but at least make the ability to to play, so to speak, the same. Just make it equal, make it the same. And I think that will improve improve the country and improve our elections because you will be less likely to to have that voter. Like I was just describing that, you know, maybe something economically is most important to them on election, but they know since they only get one vote and it's one vote for a candidate, not, you know, per issue, that if they decide, they have to decide between voting for that one issue that's maybe most important to them, but then, you know, not voting for the other things that are second, third, fourth, fifth, but also important to them. And they know that if they vote out of their party, then they then their party risks losing the power that they have. So people are, you know, may want to vote other party, but they are choosing not to. So if we can have more parties, more candidates, you know, more nuance to these candidates, more nuance to the elections, more nuance to um, the platforms and and the policies and everything, I think that's that's better for for the country. And then regarding continuing along that thought with the elections, I think there has to be some changes to, to election laws and, and the regulations and everything. I believe there needs to be a, an election standardization, a standardization, not federalized elections, but a standard standardization of how ballots are cast, how people vote, um, you know, mail-in ballots, vote by mail, early voting, absentee, definitely how votes are counted. Um, these are all set by state by state. And we see states like Florida who can tally everything up and report just two hours after polls are closing versus other states like Arizona for the second election in a row who are going to be spending three, four, five days after the election counting. Then you have states like Pennsylvania, which is a highly contested state. If you've been paying any attention to the last couple of elections, they are not allowed to start counting their um, absentee ballots, the vote by mail, all of those non-voting day ballots, early voting until, until like 7 a.m. on election day. And you're talking about maybe one and a half million ballots. You're trying to get through that on election day. Like that's not going to happen. You have about 12 hours to do that. So there needs to be some type of standardization because that will, I believe that will help um, rest, put people at ease when it comes to wondering, okay, well, you know, I, if, if the results are coming out within an hour, two hours, maybe three hours after the polls close for that location, you know, I trust that 
more than I trust two, three days after the election, because that's just more time or human error puts doubt in the minds because we've seen what, you know, political parties are willing to do to, to keep hold of that power again, going back to power. So we need to have some kind of standardization with the tabulation of votes and the ways in which people vote so that on election night, because it is called election day, not election week, we can have the results. I mean, we used to have the results when it was all paper ballots and now you have electronic voting and somehow we are getting results later than we did with a more archaic form of voting. It just doesn't make sense and it's not good for the country. You know, we heard President Biden and the Democrat Party talk about democracies at stake. Well, how about we, you know, firm up that democracy, our constitutional republic with the standardization of voting so we can have the results on election night. And then also, I believe leading up to an election, there needs to be a a, a connection between debates and voting. I'm, I'm stealing this idea from someone, I forget which, uh, which podcast I was listening to, but we saw this in Pennsylvania. I think about 1 million votes were cast before the first debate between Oz and Fetterman. And then we saw in Arizona where <clears throat> um, Hobbs, the Democrat candidate, did not want to debate, and I don't think ever did debate, um, Carrie Lake. So maybe we should tie in a debate with the start of voting. Like there can not be any early voting. And I think early voting, if it's going to exist, should be limited forms. And it should be just like maybe the week before an election maximum, two weeks before. But you can't have any early voting, no mail-in balloting, none of that kind of stuff until there's at least one debate between the two candidates. And then once that debate's finished, let's say the next day or two days after, whatever that same week, the next week, then the voting can begin. Otherwise, you're just going to continue to get um, the hiding of candidates and the refusal to debate, which is not good for, again, we the people. So the fact that we can't come to an agreement on this stuff is just, I mean, I don't want to say mind boggling to me because I understand why it's being done or why it's not happening, but that is something I, I advocate for tie in voting with with debates so we can get debates and we can actually learn more about the candidates and what and what they stand for and not just be able to go in and and vote and vote blindly and then you know find out two three weeks later with a surprise or something like that or something's revealed during a debate and be like holy crap man if i i wish i still had my vote because i would i would change my vote you know there's instances of that occurring recently but once you vote you only get to vote once uh they say uh, reflecting back now on the Republican Party, the GOP, after these midterm elections, I believe that the, the GOP needs to put forth more electable candidates. A lot of talk today um, with analysts and you know right-wing Republican pundits and stuff like that, where we're saying how if, you know, like Oz, for, for example, coming out of coming out of Pennsylvania. Maybe he wasn't the best candidate. He won the primary, but looking forward to the general, maybe not the best candidate. You know, it turns out he lost. So that, you know, holds water to an extent. But the GOP needs to put some more electable candidates. The candidates that they need to put forth, they need to be putting forth ones who have solid messaging, but not only that, that have results to run on. 
you look at the DeSantis and Rubio victories in Florida, and I mean, you look at what DeSantis did from when he was elected for his first term as governor in 2018, what he did throughout COVID, what he's done since then. He has results. He has like over a six. He has like a sixty percent approval rating in Florida. Abbott has results. Christy Nome in South Dakota. She has results. So if we can, uh, Governor Kemp in Georgia, he has results. So that is what the Republican Party, the GOP, needs to be putting forth in their candidates. Whenever you can put forth someone who has results, do that. Not people who are operating on the fringe, not people who are maybe just appealing or have the support of like a third, a third to a half of your party. Put someone in who has results, who has the record when possible. Also, the GOP needs to change the messaging from not Biden or not a Democrat to actually actionable policies. A friend of mine uh, today, the day after the election, said that if you go to the GOP website, there is not a like a well laid out platform of policies for the for the GOP website, the entire party, the RNC. And I was like, I was like, well, that's shocking because you know it seems like the messaging was pretty pretty consistent across all the Republican candidates, but not to have a solid solid policies and everything on the party website is shocking. Like that has to happen. Republicans need to talk about actionable policies. How are you going to do what you say, you know, instead of just saying it's not what is currently happening, you know, we're going to fund the police. Okay, well, what does that look like? You know, we're going to do this, do that. We're going to reduce inflation. Okay, how would you, with the control of the purse strings, reduce inflation? You know, put actual steps out there so that people can understand what you propose and also trust, help trust that you're going, going to do it. It doesn't work to flip someone who might potentially be a, a, a persuadable voter to just say, oh, we're, we're not going to do what, in this case, the Biden administration and the liberal Democrats are doing. That might work in the argument from the Democrats against Republicans, like, hey, we're not Trump. That worked in 2020. And I think now, although the midterms, maybe say not so much, but leading up to the midterms, it was, wow, a lot of people got that wrong voting for, for Biden in, in 2020 because look at the state of our country now. But then the 2020 midterms come along and it just blows everything up. So, But the GOP needs to do a better job with the messaging, needs to put forth policies because policies are going to inform people and help people trust those candidates. And then if the Republicans do take hold of the House, they need to be putting forth actual um, bills that show what they will do in governance. You know, this is directly tied to putting forth policies just for candidates, but once elected to office, get the majority in the House, put forth bills that show what Republicans want to do, because that can then be built upon for the 2024 election, which will hope, hopefully add more Republicans to the House and more Republicans to the Senate. So even though it was not a red wave, a red tsunami, this midterm, build upon it and take that little coastal breeze white cap in the Gulf and turn it into a swell, you know, that tidal wave that we were expecting and hoping for 
heading into the 22 midterms get that wave in 2024. And then looking into 2024, I've been thinking about this for a while. I just haven't really thought about the time. I was waiting after the 22 midterms, but now that the 2022 midterms are are done, I guess it's it's good now. It's going to dedicate a whole episode to it, and I, and I will in the future. But Trump should not be the GOP Republican Party nominee in 2024. I did an episode last year about Trump being the nominee. I am changing that thought. I I don't want him to be the 2024 nominee. Trump turns people out on the Democrat Party and even some Republicans who don't like him to the point where I don't think he would win in 2024. It would be too close for him to win in 2024. But Trump's personality is not going to allow for him to step back. I mean, I don't even think he should announce until the the Senate runoff in Georgia is complete. But he came out leading up to the 2022 midterms on election day on Tuesday, talking about how he was going to announce on the following Tuesday, November 15th. So we'll see if that holds true or if he pulls back. The thought was in, in the 2020 election with the Senate runoff in Georgia is that Trump screwed over the Republican Party because of what he was saying in his beef with um, Raffensperger, the uh, supervisor of elections, and also with Governor Kemp of Georgia. So Trump has numerous missteps. Those who love him say that, you know, like his shot on DeSantis last week with the sanctimonious was brilliant and genius. I don't think so. I think that's just Trump getting in his own way. I don't know if I ever said it on the record, but I've long held this belief that if Trump during his during his term as president would have dialed down on his attacks some of his speech by about 50 percent if he would have tuned that down 50 percent he would have been over 50 percent approval rating but i think his time has come and gone a lot of the in a lot of the candidates that he endorsed didn't have that much of an improvement if any improvement at all over the percentage of votes that trump won in their districts or or statewide, like if it was a senator or a governor. So if Trump's been out of office for two years, but yet the candidates who are endorsed by him aren't getting more votes than he got, that's not a good sign. You would hope for an improvement from 2020 to 2022, and then looking again down the road into 2024. So I think this is DeSantis's time. As a Florida resident, you know, living here in Orlando, I would love to have DeSantis as four more years as governor, but he, that would make, take him to 2026. 20, and then the next presidential election after 2024 is not until 2028. So two years of, of nothingness, basically, of being out of the limelight, out of the spotlight, out of governance, because you're limited to just two terms here in, in the state of Florida. He has to run in 2024. The thought of that battle between he and Trump in the primary, I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. I, I think they're going to come out bloodied and bruised, you know, these two behemoths just going at each other. And then it could split the party, or you could have some uh, level of pettiness going on to let's say DeSantis came out the victor in a primary against Trump. And then Trump 
is just so ticked off that he decides to run in the general as a third party, you know, as an independent or something like that. And then just completely undercuts not only DeSantis, but the entire Republican Party. I wouldn't put that past Trump. I wouldn't put it past him. And that makes me nervous. That's what I don't like. You don't know what he is going to do. That may work or may have worked during his presidency with um, with other officials of, of foreign countries, you know, foreign leaders. But I don't want to see that happen and, you know, cut the legs out from under the Republican Party. So I think Trump needs to step aside. He's just too divisive. And Democrats are already dug into, you know, to advancing their agenda, to holding on to power. So why on earth give them one more way to turn out more Democrats to vote? That does not make sense to me. I supported Trump in 2020. I voted, I mean, 2016, I voted for him. He was my guy the whole way. 2020, I voted for him. But 2024, I think he's got to step aside. I don't think he'll do it, but I think he needs to step aside. So 2022 midterms, again, disappointing results. I was expecting a red wave, not necessarily a tsunami, but I was expecting maybe 52-48 in the Senate and then maybe 30 seats added, 25 to 30 seats added for, for the House. That's not happening. So disappointing results. There are numerous lessons to be learned, like I just talked about. And we need to not forget them, you know, the next week. We need to stay focused as a party. Do what I was suggesting. And in my opinion, I think those are great ideas. Um, but continue to build the Republican coalition, continue to um, or to improve the candidates that we are putting forth, sure up our our policy, our agenda, put actionable steps of how we're going to accomplish these things when given the the power of governance. So we need to continue to make these adjustments. Otherwise, we're just going to be in the same cycle and be stuck here in perpetuity. We need to focus on winning more seats, like I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, building upon this little Gulf of Breeze white cap of a wave and turning it into an actual red wave in 2024. Getting more seats in the House, taking over the Senate, and then the cherry on top, the presidency in 2024 with my governor, Ron DeSantis. Thank you for listening to Counterthought, a podcast conserving America's freedom, culture, and values. Remember to subscribe and like or rate the podcast on your podcast app or on YouTube. And engage with the podcast on Instagram at counter underscore thought at Counterthought CEO or on Facebook at Counterthought Podcasts.